All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to Talking Force today. We're lucky enough to have a special guest, Brandon Schaefer. Uh, he is joining us from the uh, Minnesota Twins. He is currently the minor league complex uh, strength and conditioning coach, oversees a wide range uh, of athletes of all different levels and experiences, and also um, works in part of his uh, development team for power and speed. And today, uh, we're going to take a little deep dive. We're going to talk into some of the stuff that he's currently working on, uh, talk a little bit about his journey of how he got there. I think it's interesting and, again, worth a listen um, for both coaches that are either trying to start an internship program or trying to develop and mentor young um, coaches or if you are that young coach who's trying to figure out um, how to get to where you want to go and uh, maybe right now you find yourself a little frustrated that things didn't go exactly uh, as planned and uh, like we've talked about most times uh, sometimes the best things um, just happen and it's sometimes with planning, sometimes with not, um, but nonetheless, uh, you need to be ready um, when that time is called for you to step up um, and be able to do that. And I think um, out of all of my years of coaching, I haven't met anybody um, that's had such a unique journey as uh, Coach Schaefer himself. And so today, um, looking forward to sharing a little bit of that with you. So with that being said, Coach Schaefer, how are we doing? Oh, I'm doing well. I'm doing awesome. Thank you for, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, Coach uh, Brandon has an infectious laugh, and so if you hear him start laughing, there it is. Uh, we'll try to rein it back in, but that's actually one of his strengths, and I think uh, it's important to point out that uh, throughout time, you're going to have different staff members that bring uh, certain traits, and one of the things that I can tell you about uh, Coach Schaefer is being in the trenches with him, uh, both as a student uh, and also as a colleague, is you couldn't break this guy. He would come in or first thing in the morning and he would be there uh, till late at night. And the, the person that you see uh, at each and every shift is the same high quality level coach. So not only brought the excitement um, and enthusiasm to get the job done, he also had an incredible acumen of both technical and practical um, talents and traits um, to be able to safely train our athletes at a high level. So, you know, I, I, think, I think it'd be best if you kind of start off, tell everybody a little bit about your story um, and kind of how you kind of made your way uh, to where you're at now. And I'll, you know, kind of fill in the blanks too if we forget anything along the way great yeah absolutely no thank thank you again and um definitely a, a big part of of my ability to you know show up every day was was you and and the family of coaches we had around us so um definitely coming every day was, was awesome but um yeah just just kind of my backstory i um I was a uh, football and baseball player in high school and and actually went to college to play baseball and um, I was very undersized and, and so my freshman year of college, I put on about 20 to 25 pounds, um, just largely in parks. I bought into the strength and conditioning program. And, and that kind of early on is, is where I realized like my love and passion, um, for strength and conditioning and, and knew that that's what I wanted to do was, was be able to kind of influence and, and push athletes the way that I was pushed. And, and because I saw the way it changed my game and, um, how it changed me. So that's kind of how I got into strength and conditioning. Um, after, after college, I was lucky enough to play um, a, a year of independent ball, um, a year of independent professional baseball. And, um, you know, I was, I was kind of hanging on to that and um, entered the private sector for a little bit and realized I kind of wanted to push back to collegiate. And, and that's when I accepted the internship with Yale um, uh, under you, Coach Newman. And um, that's, that's kind of what changed my life and, and set the course towards being a collegiate strength and conditioning coach. Um, 
just kind of a glimpse into that that internship. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but um, I got there and um, you know dove into 60 hour weeks of of being pushed, but also given opportunities to grow that I never would have never would have been able to experience had I not accepted that internship. So um, that was a long five months, but a, an insanely beneficial five months that again created me and, and developed me to be the coach that I am today. So um, from there, I uh, went on to be a graduate assistant at Northwestern State University, um, was there for a year, and then uh, got brought back on at Yale as a full-time assistant coach and um, spent a little over about a year and a half, close to two years there, and, and then uh, was lucky enough to accept this position with the Minnesota Twins as uh, the complex training conditioning coach. So. Yeah, I think one of the things that I, I like to point out to everybody is, uh, as Coach Schaefer pointed out, he I remember as an intern, he came up and he was doing great. And, you know, I think one of the things in high performance is that you, you tend to want to do everything at the highest level possible. High performers aren't just, you know, just one thing. And so I remember you, you know, having that conversation with me and some of the other staff about, you know, do I pursue baseball? Do I, you know, do strength and conditioning? Because, again, it's kind of uncertain, you know, the thing that you know and the thing that you've grown up around with and, you know, you feel comfortable in the team environment to then have to jump into a new career. Um, but I distinctly remember that time. And then you came back and said, you know, I want to be a strength coach. And I think I, you know, go back through the years. I can't think of one coach that didn't have one of those critical fork in the road moments. And I don't know if you necessarily get them back um, for better or worse. And so you have to kind of go all in. Um, you know, you mentioned that the word that stuck out in that um, intro was uh, the family. Trying to build an environment that's ultra, ultra competitive is very challenging, um, but enough so that, you know, you want to push yourself every day, not to put anybody else down, um, but to kind of further the group and taking pride in the team. We learned a lot of that stuff from some of the work with uh, Coach Tony Reno and some of the stuff um, with his team about really focusing on team concepts. And I thought that was that was really good. Um, you mentioned also, too, the, those long hours. Um, and I mentioned in your intro as well is that being able to handle that, I think that's that's one of those you either have it or you don't, um, given traits. When we talk about metrics um, on the plates or we talk about metrics um, in the lab, um, there's just certain things you can control. There's certain things you can't. And some of it, you just have to have a raw ability that you're going to nurture up. How did you make it through uh, those long hours? And again, you know, throughout the time, and many people know this, you know, we had over three years, 160 different um, students come from all over the world. Um, and then you pushed hard through it, but what was your driving factor in order to be able to kind of lead the way in class three? Um, yeah, no, definitely. That's, that's a great question. I think like you mentioned it, it's kind of, you kind of have that drive or you don't. And I think for me, it was, you know, I've, I've spent my entire life kind of being sort of the underdog or, or being the person who had to work extra hard. Um, and, and for me, what kept me going is that, you know, once I realized I was passionate about strength and conditioning, I, I wanted to do everything that I could to make the biggest impact for those around me. And I think that's what kept me going. And, you know, as an intern, it's, it's trying to learn as much as possible, but also just be the absolute best, you know, the, the best person that I could for, for the full-time coaches and, and that's what kept me going was trying to be someone that they could rely on and, and in turn that the athletes that I was working with could rely on to, you know, to, to always be there and, 
and be consistent and, and, and bring the same amount of intensity and effort to every single lift. Um, I think that's kind of what drove me was again, feeling like I had that opportunity to, to come in and invest in myself and invest in people around me. And, and that just kept me going was I wanted people to be able to depend on me. And I wanted to, to again, show that, um, you know, every, everybody could count on me to get, to get done what needed to get done. So. Yeah. Again, I think back to that time and um, people always think that, you know, oh, wow, you know, it's always been easy for you or somebody, you know, you know, else has it easier than, than what I'm going through. But the nice thing about that internship is that that was, that was very tough across the board. And I know throughout the years, people took pride in that. And sometimes going through that adversity, um, just going through that process had bigger implications for them outside of strength and conditioning and more to them as a person and how they view the world and how they view the, how they want to be treated. Uh, and then the team that they surround, um, themselves with. Um, and you know, when you do that, you really have to kind of put yourself out there because it's sometimes easy just to pack it in on the fourth or fifth lift, or, you know, it's not my team or it's not my time. Um, and really reach out and, and step up when called upon funny story. I like to tell everyone is, um, you know, one of the ultimate levels of having to step up was we had, uh, during your time, uh, there was a need for someone to go run the football warm up. And uh, for any of you guys that uh, know college football, that you need to bring the intensity, you need to bring the jack, uh, and you got to go. And it's a scripted, choreographed, uh, usually five to eight minute moment of you know yelling out either butt kickers or karaoke or whatever. But you got to really bring it, and you know you got to do it at all hours, including six o'clock in the morning at spring ball. And so you know very kindly, I uh, gently informed Brandon that he had won the lottery uh, to be able to go and do that. Um, and needless to say, uh, there was no script. We hadn't recorded it. And the individual at the time who had left um, had done an incredible job. Uh, but it was one of those times where we're like, wow, we should start writing this stuff down because uh, Coach Brandon, you got to get after it. Because uh, at the time, I forget what I had um, that morning, but you, uh, you had to go out and do that. Talk a little bit about what that feeling was like to go in front of you know 90 plus players and uh, do something as an intern that no one else had done up until that time, um, but would later become um, an ongoing um theme that we would do each spring and then force people to stuff up talk a little bit about that i'm sure that was a blast oh yeah i think i think the best way to describe my feelings were horrified um and when it was 10 30 the night before and we were still at the weight room and and i was informed that the next morning i needed to be in at 4 30 to be ready to run this warm-up that i had never seen before but um you know it it, it was it was terrifying but it, at the same time like I had to push through and, and I, I think the probably the worst part was standing out there. And, um, the best part of the story is I yelled out the first exercise and, and I forgot to, to say set hit or I forgot ready and, and, and nobody moved. So I told, I blew the whistle for everyone to start the first exercise and nobody moved a muscle. And I just get a, a, a distant yell from one of the football guys. You have to say ready <laughs> from the very back. So I was standing out in the middle of the field. Um, with all these hundreds of football players looking at me and, and you know, uh, the coaching staff and just kind of had to like wear it and, and pick it up a little bit from there. But, you know, once, once I got going, it was a little bit easier. But yeah, that was, um, that was probably the biggest adversity I faced. And, you know, working hard was, was easy, but, you know, having to do something like that you'd never done before is <laughs> pretty intimidating for sure. Yeah. In that warm-up, everything would be karaoke's, karaoke's, and you'd say, ready, breakdown. But even little things to care that we would joke about, Brandon, for, you know, 
almost a full hour of practices. It was ready, breakdown, ready, breakdown, <laughs> ready, breakdown. It was very specific. Coach Ingstrom did a heck of a job. Uh, shout out to Coach. Um, and, you know, again, the, the athletes come to expect a certain level and a certain, you know, rhythm. And so when Coach goes out and says, butt kickers, breakdown, they, they, it could have been a trap. He said, you know, so that, that distant, you know, you didn't say ready. Uh, it was kind of funny. But, you know, for me as a coach, what I'm looking at in those moments, and I know any of the senior coaches listening, you want to see will someone give a max effort and try to compete and try to do the best they can, or are they so paralyzed about being perfect that they refuse to? And again, at the end of the day, maybe it's a little silly, maybe it's a little embarrassing, but again, it's also an opportunity for someone to really break out of their shell. And, you know, as Brandon told this story, I can tell you tons of other stories where people made a conscious choice to really go all in. And I think that's so important because as we go along in this podcast, you know, one of the things we want to talk about is how do you make a coach? You know, how do you go forward and, you know, generate, you know, out of the 160 we had, you know, 80 plus went on to, you know, different positions within their professions. And, you know, and again, it's very hard to get a paying job in this career field. So there was something there. And, and again, I was very lucky to get it started. Um, but then the coaches around me is what really, you know, helped take that program. And again, the success that we had there, you know, to a whole new level, unprecedented. And I say that across the championships that were won, the individual awards that were set, the statistics and records that were broken, um, all within a short period of time. And I think it goes back to the character of the people um, that both we brought in uh, and we're fortunate enough to have come back. And I know I've said this before, the biggest things that you know I really would concern myself with um, on day one was, you know, is this individual humble and hungry? And, you know, it sounds, you know, pretty easy. And, of course, who's not hungry? Uh, who's not humble? Um, but typically those two don't go together well. I know a lot of humble people that will get steamrolled and aren't really, you know, chomping at the bit. And then I know other people that are very hungry and want to tell you how hungry they are, um, but they're not necessarily humble. So, again, from your perspective, both as the, you know, student getting to experience that, being able to come back um, as a junior coach and then really kind of um, towards the end of your time at Yale being a senior your coach walk us through a little bit about your perspective as a being a part of it but then b recruiting it and c you know maturing it no definitely i think i think i think there's a couple components to that and and just kind of building off what you've been saying like i think that the people who had the biggest separation and people who who showed that they were humble and hungry were the people who weren't scared to fail and you know, people talk about that. You don't be scared to fail. It's a lot easier said than done. But the people who who aren't scared to fail are kind of showing both of those those components of, you know, being humble enough to to know that I I'm here to to learn as much as possible and I'm I'm here to grow as much as possible. And there's still so much for me to learn. But but being hungry enough to to attack it head on, knowing that not everything is going to go perfectly all the time. So. Um, you know, as an intern for me, that just that just meant taking as many opportunities as I could. I was, you know, I was a sports management major. I was someone who, you know, probably didn't coming in. You guys didn't have the highest expectations of being a strength and conditioning coach. And, you know, that that kind of forced me to be humble from the beginning. I knew I was starting, you know, behind a lot of other people who had that that formal education. And, and I had to push extra hard and go out of my way to make sure that I could catch up and and learn as much as possible. So for me, I, I guess, you know, it was, it was kind of that driving factor for me was being humble and hungry enough to, to know I was starting from the bottom and, and, and had to push forward um, to kind of meet that. And, and, you know, from the, from the recruiting, recruiting end is, 
you know, it's always so easy to tell just based off of, you know, asking, asking potential interns, you know, what, what are they passionate about? Why do they want to come to the internship at Yale? Like, are you coming because you want to come to an internship at Yale or because you, you know, you've seen something or, or you're hungry, then you want, you want to come learn as much as possible. And, and there's, there's both components to that. And, and, you know, it's a character thing, like we talked about early, and it's, it's usually pretty easy to pick up on from the recruiting, recruiting side. Yeah. And I just, I don't think that's something that you can change. I think you, you have some sort of innate, um, I don't know, innate, uh, baseline level of that curiosity. Again, you know, do you really want to learn, you know, every single possible technique and modality to train someone, or are you good enough with two or three? And I think, um, again, you start to see that in other aspects of their life. Again, we mentioned top performers typically aren't top performers just in one thing. Um, there's a, you know, an insatiable quest of knowledge and then also curiosity um, that what, you know, as a senior coach, you're trying to fuel that, point it in the right direction, but then also let it kind of um, grow. You know, another thing I think that's important is the attention to detail. Um, for those people that have seen it or been through it, um, we would always talk about, you know, keeping the weight room clean. And I think a lot of times younger coaches would say, why do we have to do this? Cleaning stinks. Yeah, yeah, no, it does. It does. That's, that's not a lie. But when you have a weight room that puts through thousands of people a week, you have to do that. But I think the larger point is, and you look at both in the military or kind of any organization and unit, that taking care of your property, taking care of your real estate is a reflection of how you take care of your students um, and or the people you train. And so we used to have a big giant blue turf uh, in the new building now, I know they have another blue turf that's a replica. Um, but we would talk about that and we would look at that turf and we would say, you know, you need to make that turf blue. Oh, yeah, it looks kind of blue. Well, it's not, that's not blue. That's got a string right there. That's got some dirt there. And so we would go through and we would clean that turf. And that turf would be meticulously cleaned, it'd be vacuumed, it'd be handpicked. At the end of the night, that thing was really, really blue. And we got that, um, you know, concept and idea from. Um, a whole bunch of different places, but the one that comes to mind is uh, 11 Madison Park. If anybody's listening seven days out on Netflix, when they talk about a level of detail you've never seen, um, that was kind of one of our roadmaps. Say, wow, we really got to take it to a whole new level. That attention to detail, I think, would then carry on over to being able to do your data going on to be able to check your workouts, going into your team builder, going through your, your data and taking a look at, you know, what was the force output? What was our power output today? How did we manipulate change or um, change our intervention based off the data? That takes a ridiculous amount of time. And you have to have a clear eye, you know, from, again, someone who picked the turf to worked on the data as an intern to then coming back and running your own teams. And especially even now, you know, I'd love to hear um, where the stakes are so high uh, in your organization. What's your thought on attention to detail? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think attention to detail is a phrase that's thrown around by just about every strength coach out there and, and something that people love to say. And um, you know, the quote, how you do small things is how you do all things is something that, that people love to talk about. And I think that, um, actually, actually practicing that is, you know, a, a different level of, uh, of coaching and a different level of just, of, of just drive and motivation. And, um, I think what we would see with attention to detail is that some people naturally have it sort of that, you know, almost complex, if you will, to like want to make sure that every detail was as, um, you know, as, as spot on as possible. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean perfectionist, but in a sense, it does of, of just wanting things to be structured the right way and, and wanting to pick that turf. And, and you kind of see that innate 
um, drive towards towards attention to detail. And, and those are the people we'd kind of see thrive the most. And, um, you know, and it doesn't mean you can't pick it up, but for some, it's a conscious effort. And for some, it's because they're so meticulous on, on, on what needs to be done. And um, absolutely, I see the carryover here on the, you know, the, the professional side of things as well with, uh, with baseball is that's another thing that, that we're driving constantly. And um, it's a lot different working with multi-million dollar signs and, and collegiate athletes. And if you're not meticulous in your detail from the moment those, those athletes walk into the door, um, you know, they're, they're, they're valuable athletes and they're valuable prospects and they're, they're valuable human beings and not just monetarily, but, you know, as human beings as well. And you have to be able to, to give full detail, um, and, and just be able to pay attention to every movement because, you know, one wrong movement could, could be the season for some of these athletes. And that's, you know, that's, that's dangerous. So, um, again, what we've seen is the carryover from cleaning, from organization towards, you know, lifting itself and, 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 and being on floors. Um, it's, it's almost a spitting image and an exact reflection. So um, we see it here and we saw it at Yale for sure. Yeah. And I think on the flip side, you know, there's things that you can train up. I mean, a lot of people think about running mechanics. You don't spend uh, much of your life running at max velocity. And I think coaching, sometimes you don't spend enough time at max velocity. Uh, one example of how we would try to kind of coax that out is, and I, and I laugh because it was, it became a uh, legend uh, at Yale, and that was the Pantera drill. And so the Pantera drill uh, was where you would have as an intern, or you'd have a young coach on one side of the turf about 40 yards away. Um, you'd put coaches at the other end of the turf. And what you would do is you'd work on uh, vocal projection. And so if you get into linguistics and you get into frequencies and pitches, one of the things that you might find pretty quickly, and a lot of, you know, I think about many of the, the power five coaches kind of do this instinctually, is how do you have a loud booming voice, um, but without uh, negative um, intent? So if I go out and I yell and I'm projecting and it sounds like I'm mad, you know, just even how I'm talking about now, you can start to tell that difference. And so we would practice that. And that was something that I could see that over time we talk about a level one voice, which is, hey, Brandon, how's it going? You know, there you go, bud. Let's get in there. And, and you're, you are talking conversationally. And then we talk about a level two, which was maybe a little bit faster, maybe it was a little louder, but you can start to hear the rhythm changes. And then really a level three projection voice is something that you got to be 50 yards out, 100 yards out. And the other thing that starts to emerge is you have to put your whole body into it. So whether it's hand gestures or motions because the music's going and you know uh, the, the athletes are making noise, they might be cheering, you have to become comfortable with that. And specifically why we picked Pantera and pretty much any of your heavy metals would work is that as you go up in your voice, those higher frequencies can kind of wash you out. So you almost get like a whitewash effect. And for anybody else um, who's listening, try it. Put on different types of music and anything with a heavy bass beat. Uh, obviously, you'd have some uh, any of your hip hop or any of those kind of songs. There's usually um, you know gaps in between the beat, and so you can kind of handle that a certain way. But really, any of the higher frequency songs, it's a great drill to practice. Um, you might find um, you know again that they're not comfortable with it. They have to find their voice, and so that is a trait that if you create a learning environment um, where everyone has a growth mindset. Um, you know, that can be super beneficial and, and not for nothing. I mean, people, administrators, people would ask me like, why do you do that drill? At the end of the day, that becomes a safety component. 
And I think early on as a coach, you may not have the coaching cues. You may not have the acumen that maybe someone with a little bit more experience has, but you do have a set of eyes. And one of the things that we used to push was trying to develop a stop wand or an ability to stop something. Could be someone's falling away into the turf. Could be something's not put away correctly. Um, developing that coaching voice, I think, is one of the easiest things that you can do as a senior coach to help develop and mentor your younger coaches, but also make a difference. And I know, you know, again, that's just one of the many things that we did. Um, but again, I thought it was very uh, beneficial official helpful yeah no definitely and i i think there's an adversity to component to it but i think it it just helps you kind of assert yourself in the room as well and and, and you know, it doesn't mean you have to you know i think that can be misconstrued that you need to be a strength coach who's who's screaming his head off all the time or has to be the loudest person in the room and that's not the case that's not why we would do that we weren't trying to find the loudest person in the room but we wanted to see where that confidence came out we wanted to see how people projected themselves again for the aspect of safety but you know, there, there's something about about bringing a presence into the room and, and having that positive effect and, and being able to to kind of, you know, pass that energy on to those around you. You know, we talk about, you know, you either you either add energy or you take away energy. And that's a large component of it. Again, doesn't mean you have to yell all the time, but if you're coming in with that energy and that assertive, assertiveness in the room, um, it, it's gonna it's gonna rub off on those around you, and it, it, in turn rub off on your athletes as well. They want to feel that energy. So, yeah, and and that's one of those ones too. I don't care how many letters you have after your name or what your degrees were, your ability to run the floor um, is going to be one of the major deciding factors of whether you are hireable. And and running the floor could mean that you're just a positive presence and you're making sure things are ready and you have a good operational mindset and things are efficient. Um, running the floor means you know you're working with an injured rack and you really really are dialed into mechanics and rehab and movement. Um, but you have to bring something to the floor and oftentimes those were one of the things that just amazed me that someone would spend four years or with a master's six years and you say okay go run the floor and they don't even know where to start and not even saying um, that they had to do it any particular way or the way that we had done it, but just that confidence. And so we knew that through tracking that it was about 800 to 1,000 hours to make a coach and to make a coach being that entry-level coach that is less likely to kill somebody, more likely to make somebody better. Um, but if you don't, as a mentor, um, create that kind of sandbox environment where people can go outside their comfort zone, um, it might take even longer. So, and again, all of these things tie back into what are the key traits that they have? You know, are they humble? Are they hungry? Do they have empathy? And more importantly, you know, you mentioned it, that you had a personal experience, got bit by the iron bug. Um, and now, you know, your goal is to pass that on to the people you work with that call to service. I just can't, I literally can't think of anybody um, that's worth even worth their salt that doesn't do this because there's a, a higher level calling um, to the athletes that they serve. No, definitely. And, and, you know, that's what I think, I think what separates a lot of coaches is, is and, and what I, you know, like to preach is just my investment in, in those around me. And I, I've never, I've never, I've never met a, a poor strength coach who genuinely cared about their athletes almost more than themselves and their fellow coaches almost more than themselves, because I knew that they were going to go out every day and do absolutely everything they could in their power to make those around them better. And, and that's kind of what that call to service means is, is coming in each day, not, not necessarily to, to show your worth, but to, to bring worth to those around you and bring worth to your athletes and bring worth to Like we talked about earlier, your family of coaches. And um, you know, that, that was, that was what was important to me. And that's, 
that's what I like to to preach to others is just be more invested. You know, the it's a classic saying of, of um, you know, you get you get out of it what you put in, but it's it's never more true than when you're when you're on floor and and you're pouring yourself into the athletes because you're going to see that those athletes reflect, you know, that energy and that investment back into you. And um, again, it doesn't doesn't mean you're doing it for yourself, but you're doing it for them because it's going to create an environment and a culture that that thrives off off pushing one another. So I think that call to service and that that ability to just lay yourself lay yourself out there and, and put yourself out there and invest in those around you is, is is absolutely crucial yeah and anybody listening you know when a floor is going right it is awesome if you've got all the coaches out there and you're looking around and they're coaching hard you're coaching hard you're trying to get the best out of there there's just an energy that i can't even explain you know short of maybe a concert or some sort of live performance when you get on a floor and it's running right it is absolutely one of the most energizing, exciting things. And then you're like, oh, my God, we get paid to do this. This is pretty incredible. Um, and you have to bring it day in and day out, four days a week for one team, three days a week. And then, you know, fortunately, uh, we had a lot of time on the floor at Yale with the teams, 32 teams and the staff that we had. Um, so you were there and you didn't want to let the other person down. And so some of the most magical moments that I can think about in my time of coaching um, was just watching the synergy between people jumping in and out of the racks and moving up and, and you know, gaining confidence and it was uh it was just awesome so it's uh it's it's really exciting to know that um you know if done right um you know that it can really both be rewarding not only for your athletes um but also for you professionally as well but we can't just you know come out with these ideas about you know running it well you know and it just falls out of the sky you actually did a lot of work once you came on full-time about really standardizing the process and, and you, again, you mentioned there's people toss around words like attention to detail, process. We actually went through quite a bit of reflection, both during COVID and, and leading up into that, about, okay, we know things here are good. We know some things we want to improve. And you were tasked with a couple different things. And one of them, which is probably one of the most challenging, uh, was developing a rating system and, and kind of survey system um, that not only um, you would fill out about yourself, but then you would also uh, grade and rank up um, people around you. And, and even my position as a director, um, having people rate up, um, yep. you know, and be able to do that in a way. Could you talk a little bit about that and kind of how you got there and, and, and kind of how that whole process worked? Because that's something too that a listener may be sitting there going, yeah, no, I like it. I want to do this, but you know, where do I start? Right. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that what we found is it's really easy to kind of go through the motions and and, and kind of fall in that lull of showing up every day and think you're doing a great job when, you know, it, and what you really need to be able to do is kind of reflect again on yourself and and on each other. And, and that goes back to to having that that fam, family mindset of like no one, no one on our staff was going to get upset by somebody, you know, re reflecting on, on their um, re reflecting on them and evaluating how, how we saw that they were doing um, in the weight room, outside of the weight room, um, in the background, programming, all that stuff. And, 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 you know, we all had a level of trust in each other that, that we could do that kind of stuff. So, so what we kind of developed um, uh, was, you know, I, and one of the best resources to start from is um, the Jocko Willing podcast 208, um, where he discusses a lot of this kind of stuff of, of being able to appropriately assess one one another um in, in a really critical sense and and you know he he was starting to realize that um there were guys around him that were passing with flying colors um that maybe you know it, it wasn't super 
critical and super direct and, and, and people were wondering, well, why is he passing with these scores and, and wait, why did I fail? And they just didn't understand. And so what, one thing we tried to do was, was lay absolutely everything out so that we all understood why we were failing in certain certain areas or why we you know weren't top tier in certain areas and and that's one thing that we wanted to do is kind of push that direction and 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 just work to kind of grow one another and better ourselves i know um, you i know you had looked at the kurt hester book as well um as part of the resources to that but really when you know you say that stuff i mean when you go breaking it out i mean asking what is your technical ability? I don't think people really understand. And that means, you know, again, as you grade them, you know, I, I forget your scale, if it was zero to four or one to five, um, but basically straight up, you know, what do you think your ability to coach a, you know, technical movement, call it hang clean, call it squat. And what was so fascinating for me as a director was looking at what you thought you were versus what your peers thought you were. You know, do your teams like you, right? So we wouldn't just focus on just numbers. You know, we would say, you know, hey, like how many people train during the breaks? How many people, you know, are asking for extra help? Who's coming to Saturday school? And then you as a coach was to get buy-in because I hear this all the time. You know, the kids aren't lifting. Okay, well, what are you going to do about it? That, that's part of the job. And again, sometimes you might need to write workouts, you know, to up participation. And then maybe it's not the program you're going to write in a year from now. Maybe it's not the program, you know, that is the number one hundred percent best training plan, but it has the highest participation that you're going to merge into. And every program is different. But I thought it was fascinating how you did that. And really, when, you know, either I was meeting with assistants or even at my own reflection, it's a real sobering reality to say, oh, wow. Like these are areas I thought I was good in and I'm not. Um, and like you said that, you know, you can't get upset about it. You have to take it and reflect it that, you know, we want you to get to that higher level. And, and as you mentioned in Jocko's podcast, if you as a director don't set those standards, and I'm, I believe it was 208 where they talked about the eminently qualified Marine and how the Marine Corps really dials down to every single detail. There's no question what you need to do and realize too that performance isn't just a one shot thing. It's something you constantly have to be working on every single day. Um, but how do you create that? And do you actually have a technical process in place? Anyone who's interested, happy to uh, you know share that. If uh, you reach out into the show notes, we have um, got a link. Um, can share that on over. But really breaking it down into a matrix where you have to go in and evaluate. And, and maybe you tweak it to make it your own. But I mean, I thought you did an incredible job with that. Um, yeah. So that, that survey stuff is, is, is pretty cool. I also know it's kind of funny, both on the uh, staff, but also with the interns, you, you made this big push for the VARC test. And I don't know <laughs> what that is, you know, for most people, they may not know. Could you go and dive into the VARC test and kind of some of the other stuff you looked at? And more specifically, why did you, why did you pick that out of all things you could look at? <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah, I think what we kind of started to push towards was, was, trying to turn our internship into a true mentorship and, and trying to develop coaches. Right. And, and I think that so many, so many strength coaches right now kind of look at internships as a, as a one-sided transactional relationship of, of what are these interns going to bring to me? What do I not have to do anymore because I have interns and granted, we, we all know that that having interns helps our lives a lot and we're able to accomplish more, but what we kind of wanted to move towards was and what I think we did a great job of was, was truly trying to develop coaches. So, so a couple of the, uh, the tests that we would look at the VARC, um, which I'm not, I'm, I'm not positive. A lot of, of, of people know about, and maybe they do, but it's, it's, it's a learning preferences test. So uh, what the VARC questionnaire looks at is, is are you uh, visual, aural, 
uh, a reading, writing, or a kinesthetic learner? How do you learn best? And what we wanted to look at with our interns specifically was how do they learn best? If your internship curriculum is, is built out with 90% podcasts and not a single intern learns well, uh, you know, orally, then what do we, what do we do? You're missing the mark, you know? And, and that's what we wanted to avoid was we wanted to, to produce an internship and produce coaches, you know, in such a targeted space where, okay, every single one of our interns are kinesthetic learners. Why don't we get them on floor and why don't we walk them through these things instead of sending them research papers that they're not even going to read? So again, our focus wasn't what are the, what are they going to do for us? And, and granted, it was a lot. I was an intern. They did do a lot for us. And we, you know, we, we made sure that um, we produced that environment. But the difference was we were trying to just grow them, not only as strength coaches, but as human beings. And, and this was so crucial to us was, was looking at this, the, the VARC test and also the personality test. We wanted to, to see what kind of personalities our interns had so that we could cater to them and in, in develop th developing them to just be the best human beings they could be. You know, not everyone that came through our internship went into a career in strength and conditioning. They, they found something that they're passionate about and, and they chased after that. So we wanted to cultivate that culture as much as we could. Yeah. And, and it's so funny because I remember when you did the VARC test and I just, the first thing I was like, why are we doing this? This is not, this is not at all what I thought we were going to do. And you said, yeah, coach, we got a, uh, we got 80, 90% of people are kinesthetic. And uh, I looked through the material and it's podcasts, it's readings. And, you know, at first I was thinking about, I was like, wow, you know, so we go there and we, we, we talk at them. This is how you squat, blah, 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 blah. And there was zero, zero uh, absorption. It, it was not good. It was in, it was not in the positive direction. And so we started instituting some of these round robins. And we had done a little bit before. Some previous coaches had mentioned it. Um, but really to see the value of it, that, wow, I have to change my educational style to who I have. I mean, we think about it in sports all the time. You change your offense, you change your defense. But how many coaches are out there listening? And you've been doing it the same way for the last, insert, however many decades but really challenging yourself, like how would I teach a squat to a kinesthetic learner? How would I teach my squat to an auditory learner or a visual learner? And understanding that even within a group, I might have two different um, groups or sections that I have to address this problem differently. But my end goal is, can I transfer that knowledge? And so I thought that was a really interesting way that you kind of highlighted um, you know, some opportunities for us to really kind of push it. And again, like you said, the first time someone does this, like, wow, I've never had a teacher, you know, I've never had an educational professor say, you know, oh, hey, let's do a VARC test so I can change the curriculum around how you learn. Um, but I think people saw that. And again, that was just one of the many things um, that was just a nice touch and, and, you know, most certainly added to, you know, why there were just so many successful coaches coming out of the program. Um, so if you're out there listening, you can find that online. That's an easy one. Again, we'll put the link on the show notes, but I would encourage you to do that. And I would take a moment to reflect at both, you know, take the test yourself, um, see what kind of person you are from a learning standpoint. And then also that personality test, I cannot tell you the number of people that were, you know, processors that I thought they just weren't interested, the number of people that were, you know, um, maybe more of, had higher emotional intelligence, so they weren't the most extroverted, um, and they can easily get glossed over. But then, you know, if you know what you're dealing with, um, you can create those learning environments to really make them um, thrive um, and really take off as coaches. So, yeah, that, I thought that was really uh, exceptional. So. And oh, by the way, after doing all of this stuff of recruiting and training and development for the staff, you actually had to like do some strength and conditioning stuff. And I want to make sure we touch 
touch base on that. And uh, for anyone who you know has been living under a rock for the last year and a half, we had this thing called the pandemic. Um, so we, we couldn't train. Uh, we were sent home in the spring, uh, but we didn't sit around. We, we tried to think about, okay, what are we going to do? Uh, what kind of programs are we going to write? Not only from a, okay, we're not allowed to use blank uh, equipment or we can't do certain things. What can we do? And more specifically, what are the biological adaptations that we know that we can drive? And I know you were tasked with that group um, and that unit to be able to build that out. Could you talk a little bit about um, some of the aspects of that and what you liked, what you didn't like, and then maybe the next time the pandemic comes around, <laughs> hopefully not, uh, what you would do differently? Yeah, uh, definitely. I think I think that was a, that was a difficult task because, you know, you're coming back to campus and everybody's in, in extremely excited to get all their athletes back. Right. So you have, you have sport coaches, you know, ready to go. They, they want their athletes on the field. They want to be doing full practices because they haven't had any of their kids in, in over a year. And, and again, that's what they're passionate about. So it's about kind of finding that balance. And we, you know, we had to work hard to, to kind of figure out how we are going to make that adjustment to, to athletes, not, um, you know, not just not having the same kind of training and the same kind of resilience that maybe we're used to them having in a time like that. And I can't, I mean, I don't even remember the portion of our athletes or the percentage that had to do body weight only workouts because they didn't have access to weights. But I mean, as, as we know, if you spend a year and a half doing strictly body weight stuff, you're in a much different place than if you're able to, to lift full weights. So there's a lot of, a lot of things that we had to consider. And, and we kind of use the Corey, Corey Stringer return to play, uh, the Corey Stringer Institute return to play protocols as, as kind of our driving factor. But what we had to really work hard to do was, was get each strength coach, but also each sport coach on the same page about exactly how fast we should progress these kids because well, well, you know, producing a stimulus is important. We don't want to shock them into injuries. And, and, and so what we what we did was lay out a five week plan of, of return to play, re return to practice, return to weightlifting protocol that that slowly introduced these movements and, and, and this stress to these athletes so that we could, again, look towards the future of, of, of returning to to practice and returning to play at full effort. But what we really wanted to avoid was just diving into everything aggr too aggressively and, um, and, and just seeing injuries take over. Yeah, I know. I was very proud that we made it through the entire fall. Not only did we, um, you know, have a high participation level um, and we, we rendered thousands and thousands of um, workouts, we were able to see really, really positive changes in different aspects. And I know if, um, you guys know we've listened to some of the podcasts before with Eric Renigan. Um, he talks about merit-based training. It's it's not a case of, oh, you did or did not train. I mean, everybody has different situations, especially in a pandemic. And we had athletes from all over the world. It's just the reality of where you're at. And as Eric talked about, the three weeks of kind of putting them through the workout. We called it welcome week. I forget his exact term. Um, but that is the test. The test is the training. And so tracking your logs and going into your team builder account. And we had three different flights, basically, that depending on what we thought their level of um, training density was, that they would get put into that. And we were able to see some pretty you know, successful changes, particularly as it related to power output. I mean, being able to get individuals back up to their, you know, before they went home level um, was the actual goal. So looking at specifically vertical jump and looking how they took off. Um, and then also going at looking at some of their tonnages. We talk about tonnage and we talk about pounds per rep all the time. What were some of the schemes that you used um, 
in your different calendar flights uh, within your team builder to, to be able to break that out? And how do you even begin to tackle that? And, and how would you have, you know, the same kind of movement pattern, but at three different levels? And we'll just, we'll pick on say squat. What would be, you know, from one, two and three, what were some of the schemes that you use? Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, exactly. We had tier one, two and three. And um, what we saw was, was tier one where our athletes that, you know, maybe had, access to weights, uh, throughout the pandemic or, or people that we just knew, um, were more experienced lifters and, 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 um, had, you know, that, that resiliency and that, that kind of, uh, base to, to be able to handle that. So what, what that would kind of look like is, you know, tier one, um, we would program the back squat, we'd program the front squat. And what we would do is while still a slow progression of, of intensity, um, because I, I don't think, we wanted to confuse programming intelligently with programming scared. We still wanted athletes to, to, you know, build up resiliency and get better. So what you'd see at that tier one was maybe um, a back squat still um, if we're talking about squats and in tier two, we would still utilize the back squat. However, we would change up kind of the intensities and the RPEs and, and how we were using it so that, athletes that maybe needed to kind of learn that, that movement pattern a little bit more, or, or maybe they're, they're great squatters, but just not great with a bar on their back. We wanted to not just shove them into these, these intense progressions, but rather kind of build that out and, and give them a base to go from. And then um, tier three would be, would be a goblet squat, you know, it would be a tempo goblet squat, maybe five seconds down, five second hold, five second up. We loved that just to kind of, again, embrace that movement pattern and give them the base um, to be able to build off of. So, you know, again, we had a ton of different levels. We had great participation and we are limited in what we were able to do. So we wanted to make sure that we gave everybody what they need, what they needed at the time to, to still, again, be able to progress just towards getting back on the field, getting back on the court. Um, because not, you know, not only the coaches wanted that, the athletes wanted that too, and they craved that. So we wanted to make sure we, we had that preparation for all three levels um in, in a manner that we saw fit so. yeah and I, and I think it was incredible to watch individuals that maybe came in at what we thought was a three within a week or two through that merit-based training work themselves up into a level one um and then you know and it wasn't always who you thought it would be we had some very very uh dedicated athletes in the non-traditional sports that might start in tier one and again tier one is moving towards getting to where they would normally be by the end of the semester. So you really had that five weeks to six, seven, eight weeks. And, and those people might be doing um, some sort of VBT work. They might be really focusing on their single leg strength or some of the higher velocity things. Um, again, rotational aspects. Um, you know, it was all over the place. And then we also saw individuals that came back and really didn't do so hot and so we had to regress i think that was one of the things we've mentioned time and time again is that you as a coach can have the best plan in the world and you are totally subject to the distractions and the interventions um that these in uh, these athletes may or may not uh do knowingly or unknowingly um your first time back around your friends it's the first time you've had a social life you know these kind of things those um those can inhibit your training goals and so i think it's just so important um, and I don't think we'll ever stop talking about this is you take a look at what you programmed 
and then looked at how the stimulus created the change, did or did not pick something. You want to do one RM? You want on your on any kind of force lift? Great. You want to do a mid thigh pull? Awesome. You want to do uh, a rebound test? Whatever it is, but pick something to use as your guide and your compass because otherwise you're just programming to program. I mean, I don't think that if you looked at any of the teams that we had, um, you know, individually or collectively as a, a season, everybody's different. And everybody's going through different things. And so that adaptability to really try to individualize that programming to their best level is, again, where you have to rely on the fact that your coaching staff is humble. They're hungry. They have a high attention to detail. They have a high drive. Because, again, those consequences um, for being one rep wrong um, could come back to to bite you. And, again, we were very fortunate to get through the entire fall without that. Um, And it's just something to kind of shoot for. So, again, tearing those things out based off the biology and based off the kind of the merit um, of the individual and what they put in. And, And, again, I don't think it's necessarily that a person is doing something wrong a more advanced athlete just may take a longer time to progress um, versus a novice, a freshman, uh, a first year, someone who never touched a weight, they might see really rapid um, progress and and that's okay. And just realize that really the future programming is going to be off that individual adaptation to the stimulus that you provide um, as you, as you train them. So again, I know we covered a bunch of different things. Um, you know, again, any kind of closing thoughts that if you could go back and maybe tell, uh, young coach Schaefer from class three, uh, to think about things, what, uh, what would you tell him? Um, I would say just, I think, I think what kind of encompasses almost everything that, that we've talked about is, is, is making sure that you take the time to, to truly understand those around you and understand your athletes and, and understand your coaches um, around you as well, because I think, you know, where, where I saw myself make mistakes was, was maybe I was programming stuff for a team that wasn't ready. You know, maybe, maybe I had zero participation while they were home and I wanted them to come back and, and, you know, do these super intense workouts when really the team just wasn't ready for that. And I think that, you know, any kind of closing thoughts or, or recollection for um, a recommendation for any young coaches is, is just make sure you take the time to truly understand your athletes and truly understand the sport coaches you're working with and, and understand what makes them tick and where they're at culturally, because I can write the greatest program in the world, but if they're not mentally prepared for that workout or they're not bought in, then it doesn't matter. Um, and, and again, that goes back to investing in your athletes and investing in those around you. Um, just as much as you invest in yourself and just making sure that's at the center of, of everything you do. But again, I think that's kind of what I would, what I've really seen and, and where I've focused my time and effort is to understanding what makes my athletes tick and making sure that I'm addressing their needs um, in, in everything that I'm doing. Coach, as always, it's been a pleasure. Um, for anybody listening, we will have all the show notes. We'll have links to the different things we've talked about. If you're interested in the surveys, if you're interested um, in some of those other podcasts we mentioned, uh, make sure you uh, check them out. If not, uh, if you can't find them or have any issues, we'd love to hear from you directly. But again, Coach, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your summer, and uh, go Twins. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, appreciate you. Thanks. Thanks.